We are in Hebrews chapter 1. We'll be looking this morning at verse 4 through the end of the chapter. We're going to cover a large chunk because the argument goes all the way through that section. Before we get started in the actual verses we'll be looking at this morning, I want to remind you that we're in Rome, in, sorry, in Hebrews chapter 1, we are looking at the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Now, when we say the supremacy of Jesus Christ, um, it's important that we understand several things. Because <coughs> certainly, most of us, if not all of us, would say, yes, Christ is supreme. But by very nature, when we say the supremacy of blank, we're saying the inferiority of other things. Appreciate your confession this morning, Andrew. So when we say the supremacy of Christ, when the writer of Hebrews is declaring and trying to define and, and to argue for the supremacy of Jesus Christ, by very nature, he is saying the inferiority of other things. For example, last week, the supremacy of Christ meant the inferiority of the prophets. Today, we'll be looking at the superiority of Jesus Christ, and the opposite of that is the inferiority of the angels. In a few weeks, we'll be looking at the superiority of Jesus Christ and the inferiority, therefore, of Moses. So we'll see that type of theme going on for a number of chapters, but it's very important that we understand several things. As I mentioned last week, for you and I, it may not be a struggle or an issue to say the superiority of Jesus Christ versus the prophets. That may not even resonate with us being Gentile believers, non-Jewish believers. We would probably say, well, of course, Jesus is supreme to the prophets. Today, we'll be looking at the superiority of Jesus Christ to the angels. And again, you may find yourself saying, of course, Jesus Christ is superior to the angels. And it's very easy that we read that and kind of just gloss over it because it's like a, a duh moment to us. Later on, we will reach that point where it, the writer of Hebrews will argue for the superior of Jesus, as I said before, over Moses, the inferiority of Moses. And for us, once again, we would say, of course, because we're not Old Testament Jewish believers or even first century Jewish, belie uh, Jewish believers. Paul is writing to a predominantly Jewish receivership of the letter. Not completely, but predominantly. I would argue, not Paul, I said Paul, but the author of Hebrews is right. I told you last week or two weeks ago that was going to happen. <coughs> the author of Hebrews is writing to a predominantly Jewish audience. It is incumbent upon you and I, Gentiles, that we don't fall into the trap of keeping it isolated only to those three or so illustrations that the author is giving us. The reason why he's singling these out is because they are important to the receivers. It is incumbent upon the readers of the text to not merely keep it on those. I would present to you that the big sweeping argument of the author of Hebrews is this. If Jesus is superior to prophets, all the prophets, if Je who were the communicators of God, 
God's truth in the Old Testament. If Jesus is superior to the angels, which are a heavenly being, group of beings, and if Jesus is superior to, to Moses, and obviously in Jewish circles, Moses was very, very high on the list, then the argument would go in hand, it must go in hand, then certainly Jesus is superior to whatever you hold dear. That's the important point that we need to drag out of the text. Because otherwise, it can, we can just gloss over in the text. We mentioned it last week, but I wanted to be more pointed about it this week. If Jesus, again, is, is superior to, Mo, to the prophets, if he's superior to the angels, if he's superior to the prophets, then certainly he is superior to whatever you bring to the table. Your desires, your wants, your longings, your value, whatever you hold valuable. Because whatever you hold valuable, valuable doesn't measure up to these three. The prophets, the angels, to Moses. So if these three are true, then whatever you bring to the table is inferior. Crucial that we get that. Now, in one other thing I'd like to say before we get into the text this morning is this. Hebrews is an interesting book. Because Hebrews is presenting, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but I want to remind you of this. Hebrews is presenting a whole lot of theology. It's very clear. Christology, the theology of Jesus Christ. And some of it's pretty deep and thick, and you've got to chew on it some. But I would present to you that the story of Hebrews is not merely theology. As I said several weeks ago when we did our overview, it's not merely theology. It is theology. Very theological. Very thick theology in some places. But the theology that we'll find in Hebrews about Jesus Christ and on a lesser level like Christology, or I'm sorry, angelology today, study of angels, is it gains its coherence, its understanding not in the theological sections. The theological sections are important. They're valuable. But they don't gain their comprehension or their, their comprehension or their value in the theological statements. They gain their value and their comprehension and their cohesiveness in the exhortation sections. In other words, the theology without exhortation according to the writer of Hebrews, is meaningless. What the, if, or to say it a different way, what the writer of Hebrews is saying is, if this is true, and it is, whatever the theological construct he's presenting is, if this in its vast sweep is true, and in its intricacies it's true, then, and then he moves into the exhortation. The exhortation gives value to the theological parts. And the exhortation is to you and to me. And the exhortation can be summed up in this way. How then shall we live? If I may steal that statement from Schaefer. How should I respond to this? Theology, any theological statements you have that don't interact with our lives, don't intersect, don't not, are not transformative, is not truly handled theology. It must have some sort of ex exhortation connection 
we spent a, a significant period of time exhorting last week. We will again this week in a different way. But really, the exhortation of chapter 1 finds is found in chapter 2, which we'll get to starting next week, Lord willing. Or two weeks from now, I mean, Lord willing. I won't be here this next week. Rusty will be preaching this next week. So we did exhortation last week as we looked through the theology. We'll do some exhortation this week as we look through the theology. But the primary exhortation will be found two weeks from now in chapter 2. Without exhortation, in other words, theology is meaningless. Because God reveals what he reveals to us for a purpose. And it's very, very exhortational, almost inevitably. Does that make sense? Good. Well, with that in mind, we come to verse 4 and following through the end of the chapter. And immediately the reader may stop and say, why is he spending so much time talking about angels? Because he does. He spends almost the full chapter talking about angels after only three verses talking about, about um, prophets. And the reason why is because there was a sizable group of, of or a movement, a sizable movement in that era that was all caught up in angels. It was very big, being just enthralled with the whole angelic realm. And so the writer of Hebrews addresses that. Now again, the point is not angels, although there's a good discussion of angels here in contrast to Jesus. The point is, that is what they held dear. That's what they held as valuable. And they were in error because they weren't seeing angels in light of Christ Jesus. They're seeing angels in light of angels and themselves. Sound familiar now? The things you and I hold dear? Do we see them in light of Jesus, the superior one? Appreciate what Andrew said about the shadows that we mentioned last week. Appreciate that reminder. Because it's too easy to get caught up in the shadows and not see the, the shadows are merely pointing to Jesus Christ. Angels serve a very important purpose in the scriptures. But ultimately the angels are about Jesus. They're not about angels. So we're talking about superiority versus inferiority, and the writer of Hebrews is trying to get across to the reader this single most important point. Why in the world would you get caught up in the inferior? Why would you get enthralled with the inferior? And the obvious answer is because we see them detached. Whatever the inferior is in your life, whatever the inferior is in our life, we see it as detached from Christ. Therefore, we make a fatal error when we make them superior. And we must make them superior when they're detached from Jesus. Now, that's not the end of the story. Because the end of the story is when we detach them from Jesus, we see them superior to Jesus, right? But that means also that we make in our mind, in our thinking, Jesus inferior. That's what we do. Now, we would never verbally acknowledge that. But by very nature, when we view the valuables of our lives, 
as detached, not intimately and intricately from him, through him, to him, to him be glory forever. What well, when we detach them from that, here's what happens. Christ becomes inferior to them. Christ is ruled by them in our thinking. It's inevitable. And it happens instantly. You don't see the things you hold valuable as being intricately from him, through him, to him, to him be glory forever in them, then Christ is under them. He's ruled by them in your mind. Because they rule you. They're the thing you hold dear. By nature, Christ must fall in that scenario. Now, he doesn't fall. Christ never falls. Christ is never ruled by anything or anyone. But in our lives, that's what happens. And so the call of Hebrews is, why, why if you see Christ for who he really is, would you ever be ruled by the inferior? Now, unless you think that I'm making too much of everything I've said so far about theology and exhortation and all the rest of that that we're talking about, Take your scriptures real quickly and turn to um, Hebrews chapter 8. One second. Hebrews chapter 8. Verse 1. Notice what the writer of Hebrews says. Hebrews 8.1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. And he goes on, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. And then he goes on and talks about high priest. Because the great theme of Hebrews is about Christ. But it's not just about Christ generic, but Christ, our great high priest. And what he's saying is in verse 8, verse 1 of chapter 8, he, he says, now the point we're saying, this is the grand sweeping thing. It's not about what you hold dear. It's about what is dear. What is ultimately of highest value is Jesus Christ. And not just Jesus Christ generic, we're going to find out Jesus Christ, our great high priest. And ultimately, the argument is going to be, what of the things that you hold dear does anything in comparison to Jesus Christ, the great high priest? Inferior, superior. And then if you would jump over to uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 13. Verse 22. He concludes in 13.22 by saying this, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. <coughs> what did he just say? Hebrews is about Jesus Christ, our great high priest, chapter 8, verse 1, chapter 13, verse 22. It is what? A word of exhortation. So it's about theology and exhortation intertwined. Does that make sense? 
theology of exhortation. Theology can't exist without exhortation. And what the writer of Hebrews does is he brings them together. Don't miss the theology of Jesus Christ, the great high priest. Don't miss the exhortation in light of Jesus Christ, our great high priest. And so ultimately, the question is, what is superior? What is inferior? Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. Indicative. But the, here's, here's the problem. Too often, Tom, thank you for bringing that up. Too often we don't see the imperative as part of theology. And, and the point. I'm sorry? Yes, it's part of theology. It, it, but too often we see it as apart from. And we desperately need to see that the, the exhortation informs the, the indicative. It, the indicative has to come first, but they both must be there. When you separate, it just becomes data. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. Exhortation without meaning, without, without, the, without the indicative is merely lost. Yeah, good. Thank you. All right, with that in mind, we come to verse 4, which is in the middle of a sentence. Let's go back to halfway through verse 3. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand, that is Jesus Christ, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels, now he shifts to angels from the prophets, as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? Today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be a father. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels worship him. Or of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who inherit salvation? So again, we're talking about angels as being inferior to Christ or Christ being superior to the angels. And again, I want you to keep in your mind what we said. Think outside the box. It may not be angels for you, but as we wrestle through the angel passage, we need to ask ourselves, if angels are inferior to Christ, is there anything that I hold dear that's superior to angels? So are they not also inferior and even more inferior than the angels? Starting in verse 4 again, the writer of Hebrews says that Christ have, uh, became as much superior to angels. He obviously always was superior to angels, so what does he mean? much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. He's talking about, of course, and we're going to see it more clearly, his incarnation and all the ramifications of incarnation. Because verse 5 comes to it and says, for which of the angels did God ever say? Now we get the contrast. Inferior, superior. He's asking the reader to ask the question, 
did God make these kind of statements about angels? Okay, got it? When you think about it from angels, ask yourself this question. What kind of statements did God say about your things you hold dear? Got it? So, To which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I've begotten you? The answer obviously is none. Now, he did call some angels sons of God in, in Psalms. He did. But this statement in verse 5 is radically different from that because it comes out of Psalm chapter 2. Now, everything in here is quota, quotations out of, out of the Old Testament. But when he says in Psalm 2, when he says, you are my son today, I've begotten you, it's a radically different statement than just your sons of God. What he's saying here when he says, you are my son, in Psalm chapter 2, he's talking about Jesus Christ being, it's because it's a messianic psalm, being a king. Very important. This son statement in, in chapter 2 is talking about being king. So when he quotes it and he says, you are my son, he's talking about his son as being his son, the king. So the question is, to which one of the angels did God ever say to them, you are a king? As a matter of fact, not just a king, but the supreme king. The answer is ruler, in other words, the supreme ruler. The answer is none. Every angel is Quite to the contrary, or let me change that, no angel to the contrary, in comparison, contrast, no angel ever ruled that way. Never was it he designated to rule. As a matter of fact, there's only one time when an angel decided he wanted to rule. Right? And what happened? He was cast out of heaven. His name was Lucifer. Because God never told an angel he was to rule that way. So to which one of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? None. Now we're going to breeze through all of these because there's too much data here, but this should prompt thinking. He goes on, to, you are my son, today I have begotten you. He refers to what? His incarnation. Referring to his incarnation. To which of the angels did God ever say, today I have begotten you? Which one of the angels ever incarnated? Became man like that. Oh, they sometimes took on the appearance, but not the appearance like Jesus did. And certainly not for the purposes of his becoming human. So you already see in verse 5, the very first statement that Jesus is in a totally different category. And that's the point that the writer of Hebrews wants to get across to the reader, is Jesus is, a, is in a wholly different category from the angels. He goes on, or again, drag the first part of the statement of verse 5. To which of the angels did God ever say, I will be a father to him and he will be to me a son? And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels worship him. We'll stop right there. Verse 5. To which of the angels did God ever say, I will be a father to him and to me he will be a son? The obvious answer is what? None. There's nothing secret in the, in the statement. 
Again, referring to his incarnation. Which one of the angels ever did Jesus, did God the Father ever say to them, I will be your father, he shall be a son to me? None. None measured up to that category. Jesus is a category by himself. Verse 6, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, and I'm going to stop occasionally and, and talk about it more because it, it, maybe it's a little more complex, but verse 6, again, is, is a simple one. And again, when he brings the, the firstborn into the world, he says, drag first five, which of the angels did he ever say, did God ever say, let all the angels worship him? No, quite to the contrary. Think about it. This, by the way, this passage, verse 6, is referring to two different events. The first one that po should pop in your mind right away is when? When he was born. He was born, and on the hillside outside uh, of Bethlehem, there were some shepherds keeping watch on their flocks by night. Sound familiar? An angel appeared to them. Correct? And, he did, and, and what did he say? Don't. Fear. And then he went on to do what? Proclaim that the Messiah has been born. Right? For unto you this day in the city of Bethlehem. And then what happened next? What happened next? A multitude of angels came together and did what? Look at the text. Did what? They worshipped him. How'd they worship him? What does it say? What, is, what does the text actually say in Luke 2? Praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest. Peace towards those with whom God is well pleased. And we know the story that at this point in time, no one was... God was not pleased, well pleased with anyone, was he? Right? He was only well pleased with one. But because of the incarnation, Christ died on the cross and took on our sin. And so as a result of that, he is well pleased with a whole host of people because they have his righteousness. Right? Which one of the angels did God say, let all the angels worship him? None. Now, I said this is two parts, right? Because according to the book of Revelation, what do the angels, what are the angels doing? They're worshiping, aren't they? They're worshiping Jesus. They're praising Jesus. They're glorifying Christ. That's what the angels do. Right? They have a lot of tasks. That's one of the things they do, is they worship Christ. But when you look at the angels and ask yourself, which one of the angels did God the Father ever say, this angel, excuse me, can I have all the angels' attention? Thank you very much. Angels, pay attention to this. Yo, you, single angel, come here. Stand next to me. I want you all, all you angels, I want you to worship him, this angel. Has that ever happened in the scriptures? Is it even alluded to in the scriptures? Superiority. Inferiority. Jesus 
exactly. He never said to any of the angels, let God's angels worship him. Of the angels, quite to the contrary, what did he say? Verse 7. Here's what he said. He makes his angels wind. And his ministers a flame of fire. Now that's kind of cryptic. And there's been a lot of struggle with this text. The one thing we know about the text Instead of saying, let all the angels worship him, this somehow is not verse 6. Does that make sense so far? Verse 7 is somehow not verse 6. Correct? So whatever it is, it's not worship. Like receiving worship. Therefore, by nature, if it's not a receiving of worship, it is, it is inferior to the superior of the one who receives worship. Okay? So what do we do with verse 7? Of the angels, he says, he makes, which declares that they are what? They're created things. He makes his angels winds. What does he mean by that? Well, most likely what he's referring to is we don't see them. We don't recognize them. They're winds. They're like the winds. You see the effects, perhaps, maybe don't identify the fact or the effect, but they are there, and they're having their effect. They're active. They're doing the thing they're supposed to do, that they were created to do. They're having an effect as appropriate. And the second phrase, and, and his ministers, a flame of fire, most likely is referring to judgment. His angels are, are instruments that God uses for judgment, for discipline, as the case may be. Flames of fire. The word I just used is a very important word. They are instruments. That's the point. They are instruments in the hand of God to do what God wants them to do. They're not worthy of worship. They're not superior. Angels don't worship a singular angel. They don't wor worship themselves. That's not their role. That's not their function. That's not, that, that's not their purpose. They're inferior to the one who is to be worshipped. They are created and they have purpose. And then in contrast again, verse 8. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, referring to the Father, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Let's just unpack that just briefly. Of the Son... God the Father says, your throne, what? O God, again, quoting from the Old Testament, he's referring to the Messiah. He says, your throne, O God. God the Father says of God the Son, what? O God. Superiority versus the created angels who have purpose, function, roles to play out, but they are not worthy of worship. <clears throat> your throne, O God, is forever and ever. It's eternal. And he describes the scepter 
as a scepter of righteousness. And he says the scepter of righteousness, or, I'm sorry, uprightness, is the scepter of your kingdom. Uprightness is another term for righteousness. Your scepter of uprightness, or the scepter of uprightness, is the scepter of your kingdom. What he means by that is this. Your kingdom is summed up in every way as righteousness. Your kingdom is only characterized by, permeated by, infiltrated by, complete righteousness. And when he talks about scepter, he's talking about what? What do you think a scepter is for? Exactly. To administer justice and judgment and condemnation as as the case may be. And so he's arguing here with regard to the son, the scepter of uprightness, that is the scepter of judgment, justice, condemnation, and blessing because of righteousness is given to God. Now, do you recognize that contrast he just established between Jesus Christ and the angels? What are the angels doing? They are fulfilling or accomplishing what Jesus, who holds the scepter, is judging, is declaring. They're, in other words, his instruments. When he hands, handles the scepter, they're the ones that take it out and bring it to its fulfillment, as it were. They are the, I don't mean this negatively or diminishingly, but they're the minions. I'm not referring to the movie. They're the ones who go out and accomplish what he declares. Do you recognize superiority, inferiority? Verse 9, he goes on. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. That is Jesus Christ. It's his MO. You've loved righteousness. You've hated wickedness. It is always the case with you. Therefore, God, your God, now referring to the Father, has anointed you with the oil of gladness. And then he says, beyond your companions. What's he talking about? Beyond your companions. He's talking about those that are in the kingdom, the believers. The result is uniquely God the Father has given God the Son the oil of gladness, which is talking about extreme gladness focused on what ought to be, we ought to be glad about, what deserves to be glad. Jesus epitomizes that. So you I hope you recognize then the superiority of verse, verse 8. In verse 9 over verse 7, he goes on into verse 10. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. So let's just stop on 10. Which one of the angels created? Which one of the angels performed the creation? None of them. Did any of the angels speak the creation into existence? Did, the, did any of the angels say, let there be light, and there was light? Did any of the angels say, let there be 
fish in the sea, and there was fish in the sea. Did any of the angels say, let there be dry land, and there was dry land? Any? No. But what does the writer of Hebrews say? You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Christ was part of the Godhead was involved in the entirety of the created read. All that has ever been created was created by the Godhead, Christ intimately being involved, not the angels. Angels are created beings, created beings. And he builds on that, and he says, they will perish, but you will remain. They what? The created things. They will perish, the heavens. The earth, they will, and all the things of the heaven and the earth, they will perish, but you, unique. This is a unique statement. The but establishes that. Unlike all the rest, you are not like the created things. There's nothing similar. You alone will remain. They will wear out like a garment. Next time you have to get rid of a garment because it's worn out, Think about verse 11. Think about Jesus. I think that's what the writer of Hebrews wants us to think. When you look at your car and there's rust on it, he wants you to think of Jesus. When the doctor tells you you've got cancer, when the doctor tells you it's a broken bone, God wants you to remember Jesus. Do you realize that? When, when your eyesight starts going bad, and it does for all of us, it's for the purpose of reminding you about the one who won't, won't perish. It screams it out. The inferior screams out the superior. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear up or wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will you, Jesus, will roll them up. Now he's talking about judgment now. Like a garment, they will be changed. End of verse 12. But you are the same. And your, ear, your years will have no end. Never say anything like that about the angels. They didn't speak it all into existence. They will not roll them up and change them. Verse 13. To which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. A simple statement, but yet there's some really dramatic, profound statements here. But first, let's just ask a generic question, because he asks the question, to which of the angels he ever said this? Sit at my right hand. Sit here at my right hand. Has he ever said this to any of the angels? No. 
Has he ever implied it with regard to any of the angels? No. If an angel tried to sit at his right hand, what do you think would happen? Can we ever say Lucifer again? Until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet. Again, we hear the superiority, right hand. And by the way, part of that right hand is referring to judgment. Can't miss that. Throne, rulership, kingship, judgment, it all is there. To which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Which means, of course, that that actually is going to happen. All enemies are going to be judged. All enemies of Christ are going to be judged. And they're all going to be like a footstool. They're going to be like nothing. Like nothing. He wraps it up in verse 14. Then we're going to try to apply all this. We'll get the big application two weeks from now. Verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who inherit the earth? or inherit salvation? Speaking about the angels. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who inherit salvation? To serve you at the behest of Christ. Is that not their role? And the answer is, of course, that's their role. Now, I don't get to all the guardian angel thing because that gets all really weird, so we're not going to go there. But the point is, they have a role. But their role is to serve believers, to aid and help believers, but not to keep us from car accidents, to glorify Christ. They're ministering spirits. serve in some way those who are who inherit salvation now again superior inferior for you it may not be angels I know there are some people who get all enthralled with angels they go if you don't believe it just go to the bookstore Christian bookstore and you'll see a whole section on angels and it's not very good theology in fact, it's really bad theology most times. So people get really enthralled. Christians even get enthralled with angels. I don't think there's anybody here that does. Maybe. If there are, hear Hebrews 1. If there's not, it's okay. That's good. I'm glad. I want to start with verse 14 and work my way backwards a little bit. Not systematically, but just grab some ideas. Starting in verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Angels are created things. They serve a purpose, and the purpose they serve is to help those who are to inherit salvation. I get that. That's what it says. hope you get that as well. But for you, maybe it's not angels. So let me shift from angels at this point and tell you that the scriptures argue the exact same thing for any of the created order. Do you realize that? I don't care what it is. The entirety of the created order serves a very important purpose. And you know what the entire created order is, serves a purpose to do? 
to worship. That's the whole point. It's to worship. We are given whatever we're given, whatever it may be, whether it is a table, coffee, computer game, our Bible, clothes, glasses, who's sticking around our room, your purses, wallets, what's in them. Man, I go there on the purses. Your cars, your homes, your clothes, relationships, your health, your physical body. Do you realize whatever the category, if it's if it falls under the category of created things, not Christ, if it falls under the category of created things, the argument of Hebrews is it serves a very important purpose. But first, in order to understand its purpose, what we must understand is that it's inferior. If you don't get that, you're done before you even start. You, you don't even get out of the starting gate. As a matter of fact, you can't even find the starting gate. You don't even know you're in, that there's a race going on. If we don't understand and are reminded of it continually, that whatever it is, it falls under the category of created things, even our relationship with our spouses, for example. It all serves a very important and singular thing. It's not for our pleasure, although we may get pleasure out of it. It's not for fun, although we may find it fun. It's not for any other reason except for one reason. For worship. That's it. Inferior serves the purpose of pointing towards superior. Always. And there's only one superior God. And in light of Hebrews, Jesus Christ. Inferior, let me say it again, serves one purpose, is to point to superior. When we see inferior as not pointing towards superior, when we handle inferior not with regard to superior, and when, we, when we enjoy inferior disconnected from inferior, we've made inferior superior. That's what we've done. Every time. And what the writer of Hebrews in chapter 1 wants us to do is to back away from it for a second. Just step away from the inferior for a second. Get a look at it from the outside for a second. And how do you do that? The only way you can see the inferior clearly is when you look at the superior. That's it. Inferior will always lie to you and look wrongly to you unless you're looking at it in light of the superior. And I might add to that, and acknowledging that the superior is superior, and submissively, if I may say it this way, submissively submitting to the superior. When we see the superior as the superior, the result is inferior takes its proper role. Always.
we get it out of order, it's called idolatry. It's called blasphemy. Because by very nature, we make the inferior superior. We will do a gross disservice to attach to the Word of God and to Christ Himself if we walk away from the study and we don't pause and ask ourselves about the inferiors in our life. We will do a gross blasphemous disservice if we can somehow walk away from a study such as this and not ask ourselves, so what about mine? What about my inferiors? All the things in my life. How are they connected to the glory of Jesus? How do they function for his glory? How is this blank thing from him, through him, to him, to him be praised forever? Amen. How does it bring glory to Jesus? How is it for that purpose? If we do not, we will continue from here to say Christ is inferior. And this, and this, and this, and this, and this is superior. We would never verbalize that. But that's what we'll do. It's the very definition of chapter 2. When, if I may just introduce it, he says in ver chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore we must pay, pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. And he goes on from there. You see, one of our problems, you know, sometimes I joke around, well, we don't have this problem, but we know a lot of other Christians that do. I can't do that about this. One of our problems is that we do this very thing. This is exactly what we do. We cling to inferior things and make a mockery of Jesus. We cling to inferior things and we try it desperately hard to make them superior. Sometimes we even get aggravated when somebody comes along and says, um, excuse me, but that's inferior. Or if somebody comes along and maybe is a little more gracious and says, can I just ask you a quick question? How is that for the glory of Jesus Christ? And what's the evidence of that? Sometimes we get our hackles up when somebody even asks us that question. As a matter of fact, most times we don't want to ask that question. You know why? Because we don't want the question asked about us. So we don't ask the question. Because we want to cling to our superior, our inferiors, which we think are superior. So, let me just encourage you with something. Text is 
Lots of exhortation. Let me encourage you with something. Look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of God, Hebrews chapter 12. So that you don't what? Lose heart. Which is just another way of saying get a cold heart. Which is just another way of saying so you don't get a hard heart. See, when we elevate inferiors to superior, that's exactly what's happening. We're hardening our heart. We're getting a cold heart. We're losing heart because our eyes aren't fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. In our text this morning, it talked about Jesus and in the incarnation. Which one of the angels did that? I want to remind you of the greatness of your salvation that Christ accomplished. I want to remind you that your stuff, your relationships, your friendships, all the created things in your life, they never did any of that. Have they promised it? They lied to you. Most of them do promise it. And they lie to you. And they continue to lie to us. The things God brings in our life are great things. But they're for him. They're not for you. You may very well get pleasure out of it, enjoyment out of it, but they're for him. They're not for you. So the hope in the text is that what he says about Jesus, he really did. He really incarnated. He really is king. He really will judge. He really is seated at the right hand of God, the Father. And also, for his children, he really does share the oil of gladness with them. He has the, the superior oil of gladness, but he shares the oil of gladness with them. Why would you get glad when you're anything else separated from him? There is no gladness there, no true gladness. It's false. It's a facade. And it will always lead to disappointment. The only true oil of gladness is in Christ. Look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. And if we look to him, he will in no way, in any time ever, turn us away and pour us out. Because he's a good, compassionate, loving God. Let's pray. Lord, help us. <coughs> we seemingly are forever people who cling to, place our hope in, our longing in, inferior things. And in so doing, we find ourselves forever ignoring the superior thing, Jesus Christ. Our only hope is you. Open our eyes to see 
Help us by your Spirit. With the help of your angels ministering to us that we will be able to see Christ the superior one. That we will be able to see the inferior stuff of our lives as pointing to Jesus and for his glory. And so, Lord, I pray you will help us to be brought to worship as you describe it. In your name I pray. Amen.